you have your Bible, I want to ask you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. I was still thinking about uh, what I was going to talk about today, and I saw that Pastor Scott was not going to finish, or going to finish his main points at verse 7 last week. So I asked him if I could preach the last part of this chapter, and he said, sure. Uh, so I'm going to basically start where Pastor left off and finish out 1 Peter this week. So if you have your place and your copy, would you please stand with me in respect for the scripture? And I'll begin reading in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. God, we come to you and ask you to teach us. This is your word, your scripture. God, I pray you would help us understand it today. God, to cast all of our care, our anxiety upon you is not an easy thing. God, I pray we would hear about that this morning and realize the dangers of not doing that that you would challenge us and make us different for hearing this message. Let me step aside. God, you speak, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Pastor Scott's message last week challenged me, it challenged us to cast all our cares, our anxieties upon him, the Lord, for he cares for you. Sherry and I have been seeking the Lord over an issue. And last week was a, a great reminder of God's care for us. But if we're honest this morning, there are times that all of us hang on to our cares, if not just a portion of them. We have control issues. We need to admit it. Even though we know that God is sovereign and all-powerful and that he truly cares for us, a lot of times we hang on to those issues. But it's those times when we pray, and, and someone's frustrating to us, that when God is silent, we pray and we don't hear. We may even think that God is not hearing us, when in fact the answer to our requests may be no. That is an answer. Or sometimes even more difficult, the answer wait. Wait. When God doesn't answer us the way we think He should, what are we tempted to do? On your note sheet, you'll see number one is to worry. First thing we tend to do is worry. Number two, we take the reins. We force the issue and do what we think is right. That normally ends in a complete disaster. Or we go to the other extreme. We throw in the towel, become complacent, and just let it go which we're going to see this morning that it, not only is that the wrong response, but it could give the devil an opening. 
And believe me, folks, he will take it. He will take it. So what is the right way of casting all your cares upon him? Pastor Scott taught us last week that the word casting is the same word used in the Gospels that describe the actions of the people in Christ's triumphal entry as they cast their coats, the palm branches, before Jesus as he rode into town on a donkey. This was an action that recognized Jesus' royalty and Jesus' authority. So can we really cast all our cares on God, yet reserve the right to take care of it ourselves? If God doesn't come through like we think, no, that's not faith. That's not trust. That's an option. That's an option. And God knows our motives and our heart when we keep this option. We also know that doing nothing is not being faithful. Faithful is an action word. Doing nothing is not trusting because we're basically giving up. So what are we supposed to do and not go against the will of God or against his authority? Look again at verse 8. It says, be sober-minded. I want you to hold this place and turn back pretty much one page to 1 Peter 1.13. 1 Peter 1.13. It says, therefore... Preparing your minds for complacency, for action, and being sober-minded. There it is. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let me read to you John MacArthur's commentary on this phrase, sober-minded. Spiritual sober-mindedness includes the idea of steadfastness, self-control, Clarity of mind and moral decisiveness. The sober-minded Christian is correctly in charge of his priorities and not intoxicated with the various allurements of the world. That sounds like action. This doesn't sound like anything uh, like giving up on a situation or giving up on the Lord. Instead, it ought to cause us to ramp up our walk with Christ. Amen? Amen? We could even take this phrase, be sober-minded, very literally. It is not uncommon for a non-believer, when faced with a crisis, to turn to the bottle. To turn to drugs that numb the pain. Does this solve the issue? It just prolongs it. It just complicates it further. Even sometimes making a bad situation even worse. Running to the world's coping mechanisms should never be an option for the child of God. Run to the Lord. Be sober. Take action. Go to the Lord. Then it says, be watchful. Your translation may say, be vigilant. Alertly watchful, especially to avoid danger. That is the meaning of of, of vigilant. As a teenager, I had the privilege of going on several mission trips to see this morning, this group come up front, being trained in Child Evangelism Fellowship, CEF training. We did the same exact training. Believe it or not, it was was around that long ago. But we would go through that training and and learn how to share our faith. And we would go out into the neighborhoods, into five-day clubs, and share that, and then take that training and go on mission trips. One distinct mission trip I remember is a mission trip to Nassau, Bahamas. And I know what you're thinking. Right, the Bahamas for a mission trip? Uh Uh-huh. 
But we were in the, uh, the resort area, in that area for about a half a day. Some of you have been in Nassau, you know what I'm talking about. There's a straw market, all the cruise ships pulling there. We were there for about a half a day to that section to do our family fun day, to go shopping or whatever. But the rest of the time, and if you get outside about a half mile out of the resort area, the resort district, it's very poor, very impoverished. And we stayed in the church, and it wasn't anything fancy, no air conditioning. We ran fans at night. But we found out that in that particular church where we were staying and helping, that the previous weeks, we, we'll call it Wednesday night. I'm not sure which night it was. It may have been Wednesday night. But the previous three Wednesday nights, that church had been broken into and burglarized. And we were staying there. And Wednesday night was coming. And all of us teenagers were looking around like, man, it's, it's Wednesday. I'm going to find me a weapon. <laughs> so we were getting all kinds of stuff, man, hiding in our sleep bags. We were getting ready for bed that night. And I thought in my mind, you know what? I better go to the bathroom one last time. So I went to the restroom, and I came back, and I told everybody else, I said, you guys may want to consider going to the bathroom because if you get up in the middle of the night and we think you're a burglar, you're going to get hit over the head with a mic stand, chopped with a machete, and sprayed in the face with bug spray. <laughs> so you better go. You're like, oh, yeah, we better go. Well, that night, you know how it is when you've you got something on your mind like that? You kind of sleep with one eye open. I mean, every creak and crack and crunch, you're waking up and looking around. That's what we were doing. And luckily for those burglars, they skipped that Wednesday night. Because they have no idea the, the hornet's nest they were fixing to come into. We were ready. We were vigilant. We were vigilant. I think of that situation in my life when I see that word, vigilant. I'm ready for the enemy. I am ready for the enemy. Peter is warning us to be sober-minded and watchful watchful because we have a real enemy. Look back at verse 8 again. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Someone to devour. There are some misconceptions about the devil. Some see him behind every bush they make him out to be God's evil equal and give him credit for all the evil and sin that happens. Sometimes even make him as an excuse. Well, the devil made me do it. Is that, it is true that he is a source of evil, but we also have the world, right? And probably the main source, our own flesh. The devil sees those weaknesses in us sometimes, and man, he capitalizes on them. He may even cause some of those temptations to come before us because he knows that's a weakness in our flesh. But some give the devil too much credit. For the most part, has done a poor job of characterizing the devil. On one hand, we see him as a red cartoon character with a, a goatee, a, 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 a cape maybe, pointed ears and a pitchfork. On the other hand, we see the devil portrayed as this hideous beast with scaling skin, glowing eyes, and these horns growing out of his head. What does the scripture tell us about our adversary, the devil, our enemy? What I want to do this morning is I want to go to some places in scripture where it talks about his names. And I'm going I'm to be going pretty quick. If you don't want to get there or go with me in the scripture, some of those are written on your note sheet. Some of those will be on the screens. But you follow as we go through this. First of all, devil means slanderer. Slanderer. In the book of Job, we see him slandering the righteous man Job before God. 
And I challenge you to go back and read that story in the book of Job, telling God that the only reason Job is a righteous man is because of the protection and the blessing that God has given him. Take that all away, God, and Job will walk away from his righteousness and walk away from you. And we know that Job remains faithful. But here we see this slanderer. I want you to hold your place here in 1 Peter 5 and turn back to Revelation chapter 12. Just a couple books back. Revelation chapter 12. In this chapter, he is called the accuser and and several other names we're going to see listed here. We also get some idea of Satan's origin, of of where he came from, of of what happened. I want you to start reading me in verse 7 of Revelation 12. It says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. There's another name. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but was defeated. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent, where we see that referred to in Genesis, don't we? Who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accusers of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heaven, heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Amen? His time is short. What are some other names that are given to him in Scripture? Satan means adversary. Satan means adversary. He is the enemy of God. In his pride, he thinks he can challenge God. His desire is to dethrone God and move into God's place and to ruin anything God has established as God's will. That is what what Satan wants to do. Can I give you one example of what is very evident right now in our society, of what's being attacked that God has set up, that is traditional marriage. That is not man's idea. When you go back to Genesis, it's not something that Adam said, well, let's, let's talk about getting married, Eve. God ordained marriage and created marriage. Now you go on through the scripture. When we get into the New Testament, we start talking about Jesus Christ. What is he likened to? A bridegroom, a groom in a marriage. What, who's the bride of Christ? All of those who believe in Jesus, his church. In essence, when we see a bride and groom stand before us, when we see traditional marriage and know that it's of God, it's a picture of the gospel. Why in the world would Satan not want to destroy traditional marriage? It destroys the picture of the gospel. That is what Satan is out to do, to ruin established will of God and God's plans for his relationship between him and mankind. He's our adversary. I want you to listen to Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. Let me read it for us. It says, 
How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, listen to this quote, I will ascend to heaven about the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. You know, this passage is addressing the fall of the king of Babylon, but leading up to this passage, it makes reference to the future Babylon and the day of the Lord and the destruction of Daystar or Lucifer, another name given to the devil. Lucifer means shining one, shining one. You see, Lucifer was created by God as a beautiful angel. We'll see reference to this in just a moment again. He is also referred to here as son of dawn. Your translation may say, may say morning star. Scholars make reference to the tradition of that day that, that saw the stars as representing God's, lowercase g, battling among themselves for places of prominence. Does that not sound like the devil? Did you hear the pride oozing from this passage in his quote? Every sentence included Lucifer's I will. I will. In Ezekiel 28, 11 to 17, let me read that one to you. Moreover, moreover the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, Raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre. Description of the king of Tyre. But when we read it, you're going to see a description of, of the devil. And say to him, thus says the Lord God, you are the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz, and diamond, Beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, created being, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways. From the day you were created, till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. Here again, the king of Tyre, we hear a description, but in no doubt, also a description of the devil. The name Lucifer is not used here, but do you see the shining one, why he was named that and described that way? To be covered with these jewels and gold that shine. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. 
And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Think about our atmosphere. We are surrounded, we don't even think about it, but we are surrounded by air. We breathe it in. In some of the same ways, we are surrounded by sin. Think about it. What drives the business world? Greed and power and money. What drives relationships in the world? Selfishness, beauty, riches, lust. What drives purpose in the world? What can I get? It's all about me. This is for me. It's selfishness. Isn't this the same doctrine that Satan has lived by? That ruined him? So natural man easily falls into this worldly doctrine that is more and more becoming normal. And in turn, holiness, godliness, and righteousness are becoming more and more foreign sometimes even illegal. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Have you noticed that in the last five years, maybe it's just me, but you can, you can uh, probably notice that the war against Christianity and what is right has increased exponentially. You, can, you can't hardly go out a, a day without watching something on the news that is going against morality and against God's word, against righteousness. It's happening. It's happening all over the place. Should we be surprised? Isaiah 5.20 prophesies this very thing, that what's right will be wrong and what's wrong will be right. Folks, it's happening. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God, little g, of this world, your translation may say the God of this age, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. When you watch this stuff happening, it's not just man. The devil is at work. He is blinding the unsaved to the truth, to the gospel, to righteousness, and to what is right. Somehow, he is able to blind or veil the minds of the unsaved. And you know what I think? He's realizing that his days are short, and he has kicked it into overdrive, and he is at work because he knows his end is coming. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen tells us that Satan masquerades himself as an angel of light. Now, we know a name of God is the father of lights. That's pretty close, isn't it? And in that passage in 2 Corinthians, it's talking about false teachers who present themselves righteous. Who helps them do that? The angel of light who also presents himself sometimes as righteous. We need to be very careful 
very careful. I believe, folks, there's a lot of religions that, God, that this God of this age, the God of this world uses. Religion can become a huge tool of the devil if he takes people down a way that's not truth, that's not right. You're talking about dangerous. Does this mean we should quit trying because the devil just has too much influence? No. He is a being, we read it, created by God and still under the authority of God. But what it ought to do, it ought to sober us up. It ought to make us a little more vigilant, a little more watchful. Do you have a better understanding now of why Peter, under the power of the Holy Spirit, uses this illustration in in 1 Peter 5 of the devil being a roaring lion prowling around looking for you, for someone to devour? So what is a Christian to do? Go back to 1 Peter 5 and look at verse 9. It says, resist him. Firm in your faith. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Resist him. How? James 4, 7 says something similar. It says, therefore, sub- therefore submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We just looked at the influence and power of the devil. How can we as, as moral beings, as humans, resist him in our own power? We don't. James says, submit yourselves to God. Similarly here in Peter, it says, be steadfast or firm in your faith. This submission, this steadfastness is telling us to make our walk with Christ a consistent, constant walk. Not a Sunday and Wednesday night walk. Not a walk that only calls out in times of desperation or, when, or the things we can't handle on our own. Not a walk that is turned on and off like some spiritual light switch. Not a walk that corresponds to a, a Sunday suit or dress. And we take that off and we can go back to our unrighteousness. It's a righteousness that is consistent and firm and steadfast in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a walk called Life. It takes work. It takes discipline to walk a consistent walk of a believer. But that's what God wants us to do. I challenge you, write on your paper or next to this passage, Ephesians 6. Write it down. We're not going to go there today for time's sake, but this afternoon, when you're maybe after dinner and you want one of your chairs at home, grab your Bible and open up to Ephesians 6. Why? Because in Ephesians 6, it lays out the the armor of God. Wow. All of these weapons, like the sword of the spirit and the the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, these these shoes are gospel, uh, heading toward the gospel, quick to run there. All these weapons, but you know what they do? They bring us back to this relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. And the importance that we have to submit ourselves, to fall under the arm and the protection of Jesus Christ. Because you know what? The devil ain't going to mess with Jesus. He's not going to mess with Jesus. Folks, how damaging is the life of a person who claims to be a believer? May act one way when other believers are around, but then act like the world when they're away from other believers and they think they're away from God. 
You know that the devil probably sits back and loves the damage that this causes. In Revelation 3.16, Jesus tells John to write to the church at Laodicea that they were not hot spiritually, they were not on fire for the Lord, they were not cold spiritually, totally walking away from the Lord and not claiming to know the Lord. They were lukewarm. And it says, because they were lukewarm, Jesus was going to spew them, or vomit is really the word, vomit them out of his mouth because they made him sick. Some of you may be thinking right now, man, I wish so-and-so were here to hear this message. Or I hope so-and-so is listening in this room. But I'm going to get real honest for a minute. Aren't we all guilty of this from time to time? We can't point the finger. We don't need to be thinking about somebody else needing to hear this message. I need to hear this message, folks. Because there are times that I blow it. There are times that I say things to people and I have to go back and apologize. I had to do it this week to a staff member. Just spout it off. I had to go back and apologize. My kids, they can tell you. But it's, it's all the trials, all the problems. It's those people at the office. It's bad drivers. You with me? It is my family that comes to me, and I have one nerve left, and they tap dance all over it. It's them, Lord. That's why I go off the handle. That's why I lose it. Folks, I'm not the only one. All of you in here, there are things that drive you bonkers, trials in your life that come up. How do we handle it? Verse 9, if you go back, it says, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Your situation and the frustrations of life are not just yours. Those temptations that you are, are, are stumbling over, that Satan sometimes puts in front of you, they're not foreign to other people. You're not the only one going through. The devil may, wanna, may want to make you think that and whisper in your ear, Kevin, you're pathetic. You're no good for God. Look at the things you're stumbling with. Look at the time you lost your temper. Folks, we're all dealing with these things. It is difficult to walk firm in our faith. Pastor Scott and I had a conversation. It's been, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago. We were right over in the B building when our offices were down there. And I don't remember what was going on in the life of our church, but I came to this realization, and I said this to him. I said, to some degree, the Christian will never be at peace in this life. Think about it. If you are doing the will of God, the devil is throwing all he has at us to knock us off course, right? If we are not doing the will of God, God is after us to keep us and get us back on track. So why in the world would we as Christians think, oh, this is going to be easy? It's not easy. It's difficult. But we need to be steadfast in the faith knowing that with it we will face opposition. It says right here, for a little while, but listen to what happens in the end. Look at verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, 
will himself restore, make all things new, confirm, stand there with us, strengthen, backing us up, and establish you. And I like those four words, don't you? I like those four words. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And God's going to do these things for us, not for us, but for his dominion forever and ever. And all of us said at the end, amen. How many of you in here are happy ending people? Let me see your hands. Happy ending people. You like a show? The hap- yeah, you like the happy endings, right? My wife is a huge happy ending person. In fact, my kids, sometimes even I kid her about it a little bit, she loves the Hallmark Channel. And my kids, we were watching it yesterday. My kids will come in, they'll sit down and watch the first five minutes and say, that person's gonna fall in love with that person, that person's a dog, and she's gonna figure it out. And at the end, they're gonna get married and kiss and the camera's gonna fade out. I'm done. She's like, get out of here, you're ruining my story. And we all laugh because it's about the same plot, just different faces and whatever. Happy endings. Can I say this is way better than even Hallmark? Way better. What about the end of the devil? Martin Luther wrote a great hymn entitled, we sing it sometimes here, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And I want you to listen to the words of of verse 3. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. John Piper says it this way. In the book of Romans, Paul has one sentence to say about Satan in 16 chapters, and it's in verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's all. He gets one mention, and the mention is he's doomed. You will crush him under your feet. That last blank on your sheet, we know the ending. Exclamation point. We know the ending. We know that Satan will be be condemned once and for all to the lake of fire. Sin will one day be no more. These bodies of corrupted, corrupted flesh will be replaced with pure ones. And knowing the end result should motivate us to stay the course, to be firm in our faith. Where are you? Defeated, frustrated, or remembering that we know the end of the book. We know that Jesus prevails. I'm going to go with Jesus.